This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Still to come, top of the hour. He is the host of Hockey Night in Canada. He is Ron McLean. He joins me here in about yeah, 25 minutes or so. Maddie's Week in Review. Always look forward to that one. Some camera time, some shine time on Sportsnet 360 for our man Maddie. He's got his best baseball hat on, his best hoodie on. Still in the I gotta look cool phase of life. Even though he's a dad now. Gotta get used to that, Maddie. Maddie, your kids don't need a cool dad, they just need a dad. Not to be cool, Dad, anymore. Uh, Peter Baugh joins me now. He is uh, a writer with the Athletic, covering the Colorado Avalanche, and someone whose uh, whose book is on pre-order right now. And I highly encourage you all to get it. Uh, it is called Force of Nature. It is a story of the Avalanche and their run to the Stanley Cup last season. Peter, how are you today, pal? I am well. How are you, Jeff? Uh, I'm doing good. First of all, I had a chance to, as you know, uh, read this over the summer. Uh, loved it, and my favorite part was all the was all the background on Kale McCarr specifically. I just love the McCarr story. It was great seeing his dad yesterday in the stands uh, as the uh, as the Avalanche. Uh, unfortunately for them, lose to the uh, to the Calgary Flames. Um, but as as you're as you're writing this book, as you're doing all the research for it, like I love the McCarr story. Which was the which was the story that really got you? Would you have a, a favorite of all the stories in this in this book that's coming out? The McCarr chapter was really fun to write, as was the the Nathan McKinnon chapter. I just think he's – it's such an interesting juxtaposition of those two superstar players where you have one who's, who's this very kind of calm, obviously very competitive himself, but kind of you, you don't – he doesn't necessarily show that fire quite as much. And then you have Nathan McKinnon who's – who's obviously so intense in a, in a way that really benefits the, the abs and has made him what he is. And it's kind of, I, I thought the, like the parallels and differences between those two was, were really interesting. And it was fun kind of going, doing deep dives on both of them. I had done some of the reporting while I was with, I, while I, I for stories at the athletic. And then I, I was able to kind of add the, to the reporting over the summer and, and I was happy with how, how that kind of turned out. So I, uh, I'm glad, glad you liked the McCarr chapter too, because it is fascinating just how he kind of rose as quickly as he did. Yeah. And, you know, I've made the, uh, the point and I think other people have, have felt similarly as well. And we'll, we'll start with Kale McCarr that if Connor McDavid were a defenseman, he would be Kale McCarr. Like that's what he's doing to the position right now. That's how he's, uh, how he's raised eyebrows around the league and one of the things that, I mean, you've seen all of the games, <laughs> you've seen the player plenty. I think the the one thing, you know, the one thing that we've seen from Kale McCarr, and we all focus on the edge work, we focus on the skating, we focus on the offense. Uh, I love how he sets little traps in the defensive zone as he's trying to break the puck out. Like you can start to see it a few plays away. Like that's how he, that's how he thinks the game. He's a really physical guy too. Like when you're that, the one thing that we lose too is when you're that great a skater, you can really initiate con, initiate and complete contact quickly and recover the puck and send it back the other way. To me, that's the the skill that we don't talk about with Kale McCarr at all. It's just how physical a defenseman he is. Yeah, I mean, you can see he's not afraid to. He doesn't do it often, but he's not afraid to lay a hit. Like he can he can hit people pretty hard when he when he wants to. Um, I think even like that physicality you kind of saw the, if you think back to the last play of the Stanley cup, when he, he made a really heads up play with about 10 seconds left in the game where he could have gone off for a change, but instead 
went down to the end of the ice to to chase the puck and and kind of kill some time. But he he used his physicality to just keep the puck along the boards for an extra four or five seconds and probably didn't change what the outcome of the game would have been. That was probably the Lightning were going to have a really tough time getting the puck up anyway. But that pretty much clinched the game, and it's kind of an example of of both his smarts and how he thinks the game, like you said, and also his physicality and using that to to just kill a couple extra seconds there. You know, we um, watching this game last night and going into it, it's like, okay, so Colorado's playing, you know, this is, this is back to back and that's always a, a challenge. It doesn't matter who you're playing and Colorado's case game one was against the Chicago Blackhawks. And we all know what the mandate there is, but still it's a, an NHL mm-hmm. game. Um, and then they come out last night and right away, Bowen Byram comes down and scores and you think, whoa, okay. We know Colorado is serious uh, and they don't want to just tiptoe into the regular season. You know, they want to get up on the, you know, the, the 15 meter springboard here and, and, and jump in or the diving tower and jump right in. Um, what happened last night with the abs? Like where did it quote unquote go wrong? Because after the Byram goal, all of a sudden Daryl Sutter's team just sort of hunkered down grinded out a win like that the thing about calgary is that is not a fast team but they think quick and they move the puck quick but no one's no one's going to find any burners there like no one's going to win a race against mccarr or mckinnon or whomever what happened yeah i think it was uh it was a weird game where so they so the abs played uh wednesday night in a pretty emotional like banner raising all that stuff the game didn't start until i think 8 11 mountain time because it was national tv so they they didn't leave uh they didn't leave colorado until really late that night um and they get in really late in calgary and then they they have a back-to-back against one of the best teams in the west so i think schedule wise it was always going to be a tough game um but i think calgary looked really good and they they have a lot of I think you saw just their back end. I think Uyghur had a really good game. All the new guys, Uyghur, Huberto, and, and Kadri had, I think, multi-point nights. Um, I think for Colorado, it was the penalty kill is still very much a work in progress. Even against uh, Colorado, pretty much dominated the game against Chicago, but the penalty kill had a, a rough night. So I think that's um, going to take some time to kind of get sorted out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also you just saw, like, at this point, Colorado is still kind of figuring out that second line depth. Uh, with right now, they have Rodriguez, Newhook, and Nachushkin playing together, and that line's been fine at points. But last night, I think it had a bit of a, a tough night. So, so that's going to be an adjustment, and and that's going to take time. But I, I think that last night was a bit of an early season hiccup for Colorado, but I don't think it's anything to kind of freak out about if you're the avalanche are you uh speaking of that second line and we'll see what happens with alex newhook here like i think we all want to let's see like okay let's give the kid a chance like he was a first round draft pick for a reason like there's a the high-end hockey player there but are are you in the jonathan taves to colorado camp yet well it depends on how jonathan taves looks and i mean he had he's had a a nice start to the season. It's only been two games. I think, and Taves knows this. He's talked to my colleague, Mark Lazarus. I think he said like over the summer, he's like, right now I don't have much trade value because my contract's huge and I didn't have a good year last year. But if he, if he's back to, to somewhat of what he, he used to be, then I think it would be a, a great fit for Colorado. I mean, they'd have to um, probably get a third team involved unless they're going to use the LTIR loophole. Um, but uh, he's he's obviously a 
a veteran player. He's not going to be afraid of, of big games. He's defensively sound. He, he kind of fits what, what Colorado likes to do. So if he's kind of regained some of his old form, which knock on wood, it looks like he maybe has through mm-hmm. the first, uh, first couple games of the year, then I, I definitely could see that being a fit. You know, the, one of the things that, that I'm interested in, and this would be, this is why I think this is a great fit with the avalanche is, you know, if he goes to another team, like I, I've tried to, I've tried to marry him to Boston now for two seasons. <laughs> that last year might've been the year, but it didn't happen. Um, if he ends up going to Colorado, it's a situation where Jonathan Taves can just go and play. Like the thing that I yeah. think we, we tend to forget about with Chicago is Jonathan Taves on Chicago wears a C and that's a large C in a large market. And there's a lot of responsibility that comes along with that. Uh, both amongst, you know, veteran players and also shepherding the kids and the responsibilities of, of being the captain and the, you know, the ambassador for the team, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm always curious about players that don't have to play under the weight of being the captain anymore. Like, I can't remember watching Jonathan Taves when he wasn't the captain of that team. Like, there, there, there will be an inevitable freedom once you go to another team and you don't have to be captain Jonathan Taves Captain Serious Jonathan Taves, he'd just be a hockey player Jonathan Taves. That's what I'm curious yeah, about. Yeah, and it's totally, and it probably will be, I, it seems like if he's very likely to be traded somewhere at some point, and I think it'll be probably refreshing for, this is a guy who likes to win. Um, I, I, I've never met Jonathan Taves, but you can tell that matters to him just by reading his, his comments that he's made in the past, and I'm sure it'll be refreshing to go to an environment where the team isn't, I mean, let's be honest, Chicago's team is kind of designed to lose right now. And that can't be fun for a guy like Taves, who's won three Stanley Cups and probably wants to end his career with another championship. So I, I, I'll be, I think it, the freedom that comes with being on a winner probably also would help. Yeah, I know we're supposed to be talking about the Avalanche, but now we're down this Jonathan Taves <laughs> side road. I th- honestly, I, I think, Peter, he's one of, and maybe the most interesting player in the NHL. And there's some things that he's not quite ready to talk about because he's still a member of an NHL team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if you if you get a chance, go listen to him on the Aubrey Marcus podcast from a few years ago. And if you've ever okay. had sort of, you know, personal conversations with Jonathan Day, he is... Like there's a there's a lot more there than just a yes coach no coach uh, you know 110 percent all our answers are in that room kind of guy like he is, he might be the most interesting and thoughtful person in the NHL like I'm not trying to wrap up his career here but I can't wait till he's done with the NHL so we can actually hear more of Jonathan Taves the person and not just Jonathan Taves the hockey player you know kind of what I'm getting at getting at there. Totally. Yeah. I, uh, I, I have to check out that interview. Cause yeah, I, he does seem like a, a, a deeper book, I guess. And I'd, I'd be interested to, to learn more about him and hear, hear some of his stories and, and maybe, maybe Joe Sackick and Chris McFarlane will give me the, the chance to do that depending on, <laughs> on how the, the season goes. Let me ask you about, about, about Chris McFarlane, because you know, there was, there's been a lot of interest from other teams. Like there was, there became a, a certain point, where it was pretty obvious that this guy was ready to be a general manager in the NHL, and if it, you know, if, if Colorado, if Joe was just going to stay with that position uh, with the Avalanche, that McFarland was going to go somewhere else, and there has been interest from other teams. Um, he's an interesting guy, 
I mean, his background is is fascinating. Uh, he has literally started at the bottom. Like he started by, you know, sending out letters to NHL managers, you know, yeah. asking what to do, how do I get in, you know, and then he's been, you know, sort of shepherded along by, you know, whether it was Lou, whether it was, you know, Doug McLean in Columbus. I know Brian Burke is a very influential person uh, in his career as well. Do you have a thought you can share on Chris McFarlane? Yeah, well, I think he's he's very good at his job. And I think um, maybe for some Avs fans, when I, I remember reading comments on my stories and stuff, when he uh, took over as GM, there was some panic of like, what are what are we going to do uh, with without Sackett calling the shots 100%? And it, it was kind of like, I kind of chuckled a little bit because Chris McFarlane has had a super influential role these past few years, even if he mm. wasn't technically the GM. I mean, and Sackick was the final decision maker of anything, but this is a guy who has, I think he's really mastered um, things like the salary cap. Like he, he is really smart and knows all of that. But, but you mentioned kind of how, um, how he came up and you can see how he, he got to that, um, that level where, where he, he started in the league office um, doing like minor stuff there. And then he, he slowly worked his way up through Columbus. So you see a lot of different things when you, when you do that, this is a guy who still likes to, to go scout. I think he was at, um, he was in Minnesota last night to watch the Rangers and wild. Um, so this is a guy who, who watches a lot of hockey, who knows a ton about hockey and who, who very quickly earned the trust of Joe Sackick, which is, is no small thing. And, and definitely, uh, rewarded Sackick for trusting him as much as he did and now has a, a bigger opportunity on his hands. Uh, alongside Peter Baugh from The Athletic and author of Force of Nature, uh, which should be... When is that coming out? Do, is there an official launch date yet, Peter? Yeah, November 29th. And you should be able to buy it online at Amazon or, or any of the, the kind of Triumph books or, or any of those places. Awesome, awesome. Uh, what are the questions you have for the Avalanche this year? I know Nathan McKinnon, when we... You know, spoke to him. He's like, yeah, we're not satisfied with one. First of all, it's nice to see Nathan McKinnon uh, smile. I didn't know that he actually had teeth, but for the first time in how many years we're seeing. I think maybe the last time he smiled was uh, when his Halifax Mooseheads won the Memorial Cup. Uh, after that, there haven't been a whole lot of smiles. But good to see that he has, you know, uh, upper and lower teeth or lower, lower teeth. That's good. Um, I know they're not satisfied with one, but what are the questions getting there for the Avs this season? Yeah, I think it's one of the things I've been interested in is kind of I've been asking myself this question of is this team right now in October 2022 better than the Avalanche team of October 2021? Obviously, they're not as good of a team as they were at the end of last season. But at the beginning of last season, I think you could make the case that they were about where they are right now. So this is a team that if it Obviously, they hit on just about every deadline acquisition that Joe Sackick made yeah. uh, last spring. Um, no guarantee they'll do it that quite as well again. But I, I, I am interested to see kind of how this this team is very much not a finished product. So that's one of the questions I have is like, what what will this team look like when it is a finished product? Um, mm. I think that there's obviously I, I'm interested in what happens with with the second line with how. Um, Alex Newhook looks with his first real chance to be a top six NHL player. Um, and then goaltending, I think is an obvious question of um, last year. Darcy Kemper was, 
was excellent in the regular season, had the injury early in the playoffs that kind of lingered with him throughout and definitely hampered his play, definitely in the St. Louis series and to an extent against Tampa Bay as well. And I think maybe the Avalanche saw, like, we won the Stanley Cup with not great goaltending from Darcy Kemper, not necessarily uh, to any fault of Kemper's because he had gotten a stick in his eye. But I, I think that that maybe there's there was some belief there clearly was a belief that they could get away with having a less established uh, goaltender in Alexander Georgiev and saving money against the cap, um, and that money helps them, for example, like sign Evan Rodriguez and, and things like that. So I I think that's really interesting, and I'm curious how Georgiev will look in kind of his first real opportunity to start. Have about 60 seconds for this one. Let's see if we can do it. Uh, Valery Nichushkin, uh, there's no longer a secret how good this guy is. I mean, he's been a, a sneaky sort of stealth, sulky candidate now for, for a couple of seasons. Um, in the playoffs, you could have made a strong case for the Smythe for Valery Nichushkin. Um, your thoughts on now that he's been paid, new pressures on this guy who used to be the ultimate hipster player. Oh, yeah, McKinnon's great, but how about Nichushkin? Um, thoughts on the, the, the new pressure on him, if he can do it in 60 seconds, bless you. <laughs> well, he's a uh, work ethic or any of that. That's not going to be a question. He's one of the hardest workers on the team. And I think even if maybe his offensive touch, um, it, maybe if that doesn't grow from what it was last year, he's still going to be an elite defensive player like that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really, you don't really go through slumps with that as much as you do maybe with puck luck on the offensive end. So I yep. think that, um, I think that the abs know they can count on that. They know they can count on his work ethic. And then if he can replicate what he did offensively last year, then they're, then they're golden. And anything beyond that is, is a bonus. And he already has three goals in two games. So he's off to a good start. He is uh, earning it. And uh, so are you. Uh, very much looking forward to the release of Force of Nature, the story of the Colorado Avalanche, and the lead-up to a Stanley Cup victory. Uh, you can read Peter as well in The Athletic. Uh, you're the best, man. Thanks, as always, for stopping by. Always my pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. There he is, Peter Baugh from the uh, from the Athletic, uh, covering the Colorado Avalanche, dropping it, dropping a tough one to the Calgary Flames yesterday. But man, the Flames look good. I know it's a back to back for Colorado, but the Flames look good. They really did, which uh, leads us to very much look forward to tomorrow and the Battle of Alberta. That is a nightcap game. Uh, on Hockey Night in Canada, Ron McLean will stop by here in a couple of moments. We'll also talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Ottawa Senators. That is early also on Sportsnet Pacific, the uh, Sportsnet East, rather. Uh, the Montreal Canadiens face off against the Washington Capitals. Also, I uh, want to let you know, Maddie's Week in Review is coming up here in a couple of moments. Uh, one more thing that I want to talk to Ron about. You know, we've, you know, before we got to, um, got to air for this season... You know, there was a wonderful documentary about 1972. It's a 50th anniversary. Books that have been written about 1972. Paul Pasco was an excellent one. Scott Morrison came out with one last spring. I'm curious uh, what Ron McLean thinks now, 50 years later. 72 was then, 2022 is now. How have we evolved our thinking about what happened, specifically at Luzhniki? Merrick Show, Hour 2, On the Horizon. Keep it here. Most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. If you're listening to us across the Sportsnet Radio Network, thank you. Watching on Sportsnet 360, thank you. Whether you're uh, watching perhaps on your tablet, on television, in a hockey retailer, wherever you are, sports bar, thanks for having us on. Uh, Maddie's Week in Review coming up at the bottom of the hour. In the meantime, we all look forward to week one of Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, the Ottawa Senators and the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, and the Calgary Flames and the Edmonton Oilers. Yes, it is the Battle of Ontario and the Battle of Alberta. And your host for Hockey Night in Canada is the great Ron McLean. He joins me now. Ron, how are you today? I'm great, Jeff. Just hearing you describe all the places we might be listening or watching the broadcast made yes. me think of all the places you might find Elliot Friedman, right? I was, I was thinking, <laughs> I'm, I'm like Elliot right now. I'm in my car, but Elliot's either in the shower at home or he's behind the wheel of his car or he's on sidewalks of yes. a far-flung city in the playoffs or he's out, as today was the case, uh, looking for birds. <laughs> yeah, you, well, you know, because you listen. So, you know, like, we'll grab Elliot wherever we can, like those uh, the car casts on the way home after you know, in the, the, the Tampa, Colorado, he was just after every uh, after every playoff game, so like like he's committed to the bit. Like I'll, I'll give that to Fridge. Like no matter where he is, he'll 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 make himself available. You know, one of the one of the things that I was you know I was driving in this morning. I'm like, okay, so I want to talk to Ron about the games tomorrow and Hockey Night in Canada and etc. But you know, the conversation around hockey in September, um, you know, uh, last month really was dominated by the 50th anniversary of '72 and the Summit series. And I'm always curious about people that have you know had a lot of years to digest it and learn about it and read about it and that wonderful you know documentary that we all saw about it and you know Paul Patsku has a new book uh, out about it and some great comments from from Russian athletes certainly and how they viewed it and Scotty Morrison had one last season you know 50 years later 72 was well, I was three years old so 76 was my first big international tournament but you know how was your thinking about that tournament? evolved or how many do you have new questions about it because it doesn't seem like a like the type of event that just gets frozen in one place and we only have one conversation about it how have you sort of changed around this event ron well you know it has stood the test of time for sure jeff it's still as big as it was uh, right after the victory in game eight Uh, and i think there are so many uh, lessons we learned obviously about how to approach the sport uh, the skill, the skating, all of those uh, things we learned. Uh, the number of coaches who were quick to study what was going on over there versus them having studied Canada's approach. Uh, and we all know that uh, Tarasov was a disciple of Percival. But, but you know, I, I look at the collaboration as probably the, the most important thing that uh, I remember about it. I, I recall we were just fresh off the FLQ crisis in Quebec. Uh, yep. We were just a couple of years before René Levesque. So we were, uh, the two solitudes were at it at the time. And and that was not reflected in the approach of Team Canada. It was a, at the time everybody thought that name was ridiculous. What do you mean, Team Canada? That's backwards. Uh, but in fact, it was inspired by you know French version of L'Equipe de Canada. So it was a great idea to to be uh, good for both solitudes. The you know fact that on the final face-off, Bill Esposito was incredible his leadership. But the the last face-off before Henderson scored, Henderson wasn't yet on the ice. Phil, the Boston Bruin, took the draw with five Montreal Canadiens. 
with him. Ken Dryden, of course, and Nett, Savard, Lapointe, Mahovlich, and Cornwallier. And I loved that because they were the arch rivals right then, oh, yeah. the Montreal Canadiens and the Boston Bruins. So there was, you had the French and the English collaborating, you had the Bruins and the Montreal Canadiens collaborating. Uh, it was a great lesson. And then I, I laugh, uh, the other thing I think that I just enjoyed again is, as we went through Icebreaker, uh, the documentary film by Robbie Hart, uh, and as you say, the documentary and all the books, well, two things. One is uh, Esposito, I mentioned his leadership. Uh, you know, it was 5-3 to three after two periods in Game 8 for the Soviets. It should have been 6-3. to three. Phil Esposito saved a puck on the goal line, just like Mason McTavish mm. rescued Team Canada at the World Juniors. And I'll try and show that tomorrow night if time That's permits. Great. But it's, uh, uh, you know, Ken Dryden in his book, because all these books are out, Ken's, you know, he ends it the last page. He talks about the defining moments being Esposito, as he describes, who wouldn't know the defensive end from a Zambo. <laughs> uh, that's why Phil Esposito was on my goal line in that moment and why Henderson did what he did. And Henderson's funny because he says, well, Foster, you know, he described the, the greatest goal of the century. You know, he says, my greatest goal, as you well know, Jeff, was Game 7's winner. But yeah. Foster described what has been dubbed the goal of the century. He says, Henderson makes a wild stab at it and fell. And he says, honestly, like I'm out of control. I'm clumsy. It's the last way I wanted to be depicted, but it... <laughs> Obviously, it depicts the urgency, the desperation, yeah. the effort. And I think I think that's, you know, within all that we've learned about making ourselves better athletes, better skaters, better nutrition and so forth. In the end, that effort, that, that desperation, uh, you know, don't ever forget that. And it, it kind of marked us as Canadian, you know, our heart and our comeback spirit, which has been reflected in so many performances ever since. But I, I just... Pin it down to Henderson. Yes, he was mm-hmm. kind of our Harlemoff, the fastest skater, but it was his effort that made it happen. So there's a there, there there's a lot there. So one uh, to your point about <laughs> Phil Esposito, I mean the old I and mean, you remember this, Ron? Like the the old story is like you needed a crane to get Phil Esposito to back check. Like he just wasn't going to go over right. his side of the, uh, of the of the blue line. Um, I remember talking to to one of the members of the team, um, and he said to me. The one thing that worked against uh, the Soviets was how they played. And I said, well, how do you mean by that? Because, you know, we thought like, oh, this is revolutionary, holding the puck, you approach the blue line. If you didn't have a play, it would be regroup, you know, neutral zone regroup after neutral zone regroup. And he said, yeah, but what would have really killed us is we were a bunch of, you know, Canadians who thought we were going to win, you know, eight games to nothing. And we really didn't take it seriously until we got to Luzhniki. We were out of shape. And he said, listen, if they would have played a more North American style, if instead of, you know, regrouping in the neutral zone, if they just would have lobbed pucks behind us and made us skate, we were dead. By the end of the third period, we would have been exhausted. And this would have, he said, it's interesting. He said, I've thought about this a lot. It was actually the Soviet style that hurt them. He said, if the Soviets would have played a North American style, we were dead in the water, Ron. What do you think of that? Well, I don't know because uh, I, I do know that they got up, you know, and looked like they had the series in hand. And there's always that late or little emotional letdown that uh, I think affected the situation. Bobrov taking over from Tarasov, you know, he was trying to create a little more individuality in their approach. So maybe, maybe that's what got to them. There's so many things that, uh, you, you know, the injury to Harlamov. Yeah. Uh, so to try and sort it all out is, I think, impossible. All I do know is, you know, there will never be. Uh, a Cold War slash hockey game like it. Uh, 87 was close. Even the Rendezvous All-Star Exhibition in 87 was had a bit of intrigue. We really didn't know the Soviet players at that time. Yep. 
but man, it was uh, the mystery is what makes you know surprises the is the foundation of show business, and it was a great surprise. And and maybe those things you say are right, Jeff, but who knows? You know, you know one of the it's things. Like, it's like just 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 to quickly think about that. You know, yeah. uh, uh, J.P. Morosi was on the fan with uh, Justin Cuthbert and Alish yesterday morning, yeah. talking about that bloop single that landed between because Elliot Friedman traumatized Carolyn Cameron and me by taking <laughs> us saw. to Game Two. I saw last Saturday. Yeah, with Kathy Broderick. <laughs> anyway, that that bloop sim single by Crawford that lands between Bichette and Springer. You know, if that if that's a catch, and I thought when the ball was hit, good. Jays have won game mm-hmm. three tomorrow, uh, but it lands. And, you know, so that's sports, right? And that to go back and, and actually try to sort out what happened in even game eight is, uh, but I do pinpoint the Esposito save as, mm-hmm. as the turning point in game eight and then Henderson's Henderson. You know, it's interesting because you, you, you also mentioned something about learning moments, teachable moments, and, you know, uh, us learning about them, them learning about us. And I, I think one of the first coaches that ever really had more than just a passing glance um, at, at Soviet hockey and, you know, the lessons of Tarasov, etc., was Fred Shiro. And, yeah. you know, he would you know, go to Russia and, you know, learn how they played, and there was a, that type of exchange. And as much as we put the accent on the Philadelphia Flyers, his team that won those two Stanley Cups and, you know, bullied their way to a cup and rough house, you can't fill the box, so just keep being rough. Like, that was a really good passing team. And we all know Tarasov's, you know, you read this in you know, one, of the, one of the books that I always recommend to people is Road to Olympus, uh, Anatoly yeah. Tarasov, which is a wonderful, it's long out of print and hard to find. But if you can, it is a gem for coaches. And he talks a lot about, you know, uh, passing. And up until then, hockey had well, been a solo rush game. And he sat there at World Championships counting passes. And he found that whoever completed the most passes won the game. And that was really profound for Shiro and his Flyers and later Shiro and his Rangers. You're right about that because there was a formula. He said, uh, Punch Imlac claims if they get 75 hits, they win. Mm. We, we go by if we get 225 passes, we win. So that was, that was how Tarasov processed that. And then as for Shiro, Claire Drake, the great uh, yeah. innovator and coach of the University of Alberta, he had a symposium out west uh, in the early 70s. Uh, the only two guys that I know that were NHL uh, coaches who attended those where Ken Hitchcock was really young, mm-hmm. and uh, Fred Shiro. Fred Shiro was at every seminar that Drake conducted to try and explore what the Soviets had done in 72. So he, you're definitely right about that. And, uh, he, it's just uh, it's a phenomenal legacy, and, and it, was, it was, I think, a little subdued. I don't know if you feel this way, but because of the uh, invasion of Ukraine uh, yep. you know, and the horrible situation there, it, it made it a little difficult to to celebrate uh, 72 the way I think we might have because it would have been nice to have Mikhailov and Trechak and, uh, you know, um, um, Mikhailov here, but that, that just didn't happen. That, that's an excellent point, uh, and you know, I think you're bang on about it because, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm really intrigued by is Game 1 and how, in a lot of ways, for the Soviets, that was the tournament because that showed that they can compete against the NHL's best and succeed. And in a lot of ways, you can make the argument there were two winners because Soviet Union established itself as a hockey powerhouse against the best. And then obviously Canada won the, the, uh, the eight-game series. But if you, you talk to a lot of the athletes from that Soviet squad, they'll tell you the win yes. was in game one. For Canada, the win was That's in right. game eight. But for the Soviets, the win was at the Montreal Forum in game one. Even after game eight, the Soviets had won. 
they had they had proved that they could play with Canada. Uh, you're so right. I think that's the great uh, another great lesson of '72 is both the Soviets and Canada felt that they had won mm-hmm. and felt really good about uh, the experience. Okay, speaking of winning, uh, it's the Battle of Ontario and the Battle of Alberta. Uh, Hockey Night in Canada. I think the only drag about uh, the Battle of Alberta is these two teams only face each other three times uh, in the the regular season. We get the first one tomorrow on Hockey Night. Um, Yeah, you must have a thought on on both these games heading into what's going to be an action-packed Saturday night. Well, uh, for sure, uh, Calgary did look great, as you just said. Uh, I thought they looked fast, too. You're probably right. Maybe it's puck movement, but uh, Manjriapani was flying and Dubé was flying, and that uh, rush by Uyghur was amazing. And, I, yeah, I just thought they were fast. And there was the look on Lindholm's face when Huberto made the pass for his goal, uh, you know, that that's a... What's a really amazing, and you love these kinds of discussions, and I'll see what Kelly and Jen and Kevin and Elliot have as an appetite for it, but suddenly all the great playmakers in our sport are wingers. Aha. I don't know when it shifted. Uh, you know, Jonathan Huberto is a left winger, and he's he's sort of the driving force, and Brad Marchand is a driving force, Mitch Marner. Leon Dreisaitl is a bit of an anomaly because he's a center-slash-winger. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Kane is a winger. Nikita Kucherov is a winger. Artemi Panarin is a winger, and I'm watching Lafreniere. And I remember when they drafted him, I thought, gee, it's too bad he's a winger. But he is incredible. So I'd say seven of the top ten playmakers in our game right now are wingers. Yes. So that, that's one really interesting thing, watching Calgary and their approach. Can we pause on that for one second? Here's here's my theory yeah. on this one, because I've thought a lot about this. And whether it's Patrick Kane or whether it's Mitch Marnie, you mentioned Jonathan Huberto. Uh, I'll throw our Timmy Panarin into that conversation as I well. I said, yeah. Um, I am of the belief that what we're seeing here is the beginnings of, like, you know, 30 or 40 years, we'll look back and we'll say, okay, this is where it really began. The idea of positionless hockey. You know, sure, there's a place to, to line up for face-offs, but after the, after the puck drops, it almost becomes, because everybody now has a, has a skill set that overlaps. Like, I remember I was saying this the other day, like when I would go to the CHL, NHL top prospects game and go watch the practices and, you know, see all the kids that are on the horizon, I'd always say, like, where did all the bad skaters go? Like, there's no more bad skaters. Like, every, there is a, a common skill set that a lot of players that enter the NHL have, and I think that that's going to bleed into this idea that positions only exist on the draw. After that, you're no longer a right winger or a center. There's, you don't have those very specific sort of table hockey responsibilities it's become more positionless. Do you agree or disagree that that's where this I, game oh, is? Oh, I totally at? agree. And it, and it even goes over to overlaps with your conversation about Kale McCarr because every deep pair has to have one guy, uh, you know, and most teams need to have one guy, whether it's Gwyn Hughes in Vancouver or Kale McCarr, and you can go down the list. Uh, that, that's, a, that's another player who doesn't really play a position. So, I mean, in the, in the old days, Yager was a winger playmaker. Korea was a winger yes. playmaker. Marty St. Louis, of course, is a coach now, and it was great to see Kyle Bukowski's report on how Montreal is trying to claim and, and – convince everyone that it's not God-given. You can make yourself a great player. And another one other thing you can pursue on your shows, and you probably have on some of them, but, you know, with Quinn Hughes or Morgan Riley having to think about playing their offside a little bit more this season, or played his offside, left-hand shot, played right D, yep. Bork did it, Brad Bork did it, Scott Niedermeyer did it. So everything, nothing's new under the sun. But it is funny how uh, we're kind of having a convergence of all these wisdoms. The the rover is back and the, yes. the winger playmaker. You know, the, the, the one thing one coach told me, because I was having the conversation with, with one NHL coach who told me this. We were talking about the lefty-righty 
uh, things. And, and he's really a proponent. He said, I need lefty righty. I need lefty righty. I need lefty righty. And I said, well, why? And he said, you know, if you have like, let's say a, a left-hand defenseman um, playing on his, on his, on his uh, offside and he's coming around the net on his right side, that split second, it takes that split second to get your stick out to make an outlet pass. He said that that's the one area you can exploit is a left-hand shot coming out the right side or the right-hand shot coming out the other side. Because if you're, right. if you're a right-hand shot coming out the right side, your stick's right there to make that play. He says everything in the game moves so f- You know this, wrong, So quickly, so yeah. sudden now, even that one fraction of getting your stick out to make that play can make all this. He said, that's the one fly in the ointment here. You know, we'd love to be For able sure. to just well, say we don't care about lefty-righty, but that's the one area you can exploit. Bobby Orr, I mean, he lost it in his skates, but when Pat Quinn hit him, I think that's also a product of him being on his backhand as he brought it up the right side, you know, a left-hand shot. Yeah. So th- there, there are problems, but, but there are benefits uh, to everything, you know. Uh, and, and just to go back to a couple of things, like obviously Uyghur was great last night. He was. Uh, the defense, uh, Rasmus Dahlin, you saw that uh, oh boy. unbelievable rush. The movie made in his own end, and then the game-winning goal for Buffalo. He showed me a little bit of... Uh, you know, some special leadership last night. I thought Keandre Miller, you know, Elliot's saying he can't wait to watch the, we all have to watch the Rangers because this is just really something what they're doing. But Keandre, in all that I've seen of him this season so far, he's off the charts. And yeah, what a, what a start to the year. And, and even as you said, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. We, I know we've got to go pretty soon, but uh, Mason Marchman, yep. uh, his father, Brian, uh, early in the 2000s, final game of the regular season he was in toronto and we ended up the oilers were over at uh, the madison avenue pub uh, oh yeah in toronto <laughs> yeah which there. is kind of the backyard bar for uh, don Meehan and wendell clark anyway yeah. we're there and it's about four or five in the morning it's the end of the season we've got a few days till the playoffs yep. and brian marchman and i are standing together and we're out of beer both of us and you know we're kind of forlorn because it's been the last call and Curtis Joseph, bless his heart, comes over and he says, Sherzies, and he fills our glasses with some of his beer. And uh, we were so grateful. And 36 hours later, Cujo was starting at the World Championships overseas, and he was unbelievable. <laughs> but I'll always remember, I saw Brian last that uh, he was scouting the, not the CHL top prospects, but the Junior A, the Tier 2 uh, yep. top prospects. I stood with him and Todd Harvey in Hamilton. It was the same venue for both uh, top prospects games. And, yeah, what a what a great player. And a, to see what uh, Mason did last night for Dallas was uh, sensational. Did you see what Peter DeBoer said after? It was like uh, Mario-like yes. qualities. On yeah, the... well, and it's a good analogy. I, I couldn't believe his speed. And that Barb Underhill, right, I think deserves some of the credit for working on his skating for sure. Uh, but, yeah, that was explosive. There were so many great rushes. And, and Uyghur, not only did he make a great rush, but he made an unbelievable pass to set up Rasmus uh, Anderson on the goal where he came out of the penalty box Anderson and scored and that was a great breakaway and a great move by a defenseman so these D all over the league are, are really yeah. showing up early really jumping you know the um the, the battle of Ontario is always interesting as well and you know the Maple Leafs um have had you know the shady side of the mountain and the sunny side of the mountain in their first two games here against Montreal not so much and then you know it seemed to to turn things around what did you I'm always curious because you this is the this is the one of your sort of realms of expertise, sort of reading in between the lines or what the, what's the coach trying to get at here? You know, I had someone send me a note right away after the Montreal game and after, after, uh, after Sheldon spoke and said, I can't believe he's playing this card this early because now he's just put all the heat on game two. And he said, you know, players will look at that and go, wow, you're going with that one this early? 
What did you make of the reaction uh, by, uh, by by Sheldon Keefe right after that first loss where he talked about you know, well, not, rem- not being prepared and put a lot of heat on game? This is early in the season here. But he also put the light on himself. By doing that, uh, it's like Gretzky's uh, rant in Salt Lake City. And I remember doing an interview with Sheldon Keefe and Nick Nurse, the Raptors, uh, of yep. course, championship coach. And and uh, we were talking about, you know, how do you gather yourself and what do you say after key moments? Because the uh, Raptors had squandered game five uh, in the final. And Nick Nurse had made a, a, contra- or a, yeah, a call that was controversial in terms of his lineup. Uh, and he had to face the media. And, and he talked about the importance of... Uh, how you uh, present yourself does a lot to kind of control the media. And I was watching Sheldon Keefe listen, you know, to every word that Nurse was saying. And I, I think it was a little bit of that. I, I remember thinking watching just as he went to commercial break at the end of the pregame show on Wednesday night, uh, they had Slavkovsky and he looked, you know, like he had the world by the tail. And then they cut to the leaf room and Austin Matthews was deep in a, you know, just caring uh, in, in a way that didn't feel free. And, uh, you know, you can always tell uh, that body language is just, you know, it sounds easy that you're going to go in. But I think Austin understood that they were a little bit ripe for the picking because of the the situation. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't mind Keith doing that. I think, as I say, he brought the attention on himself and the media wasn't busy going to Austin or to John Tavares. They were busy going to Sheldon to try and sort it out. And that was a good thing to give the players a break. And that 21 hours was enough versus Washington. thought Tavares was great that night. Uh, yeah. It's really good to see him jump off to a great start. And uh, I am definitely, Wayne Scanlon has a great piece in sportsnet.ca today about being at a high school re- reunion. And there's a guy just kitty corner to him. And the guy says, I hate Daniel Alfredson. <laughs> and, and Wayne Scanlon <laughs> knew that the guy knew he was covering the Ottawa Senators back in the early 2000s. And it was just such a funny comment about, I hate Alfredson. And it all, of course, yeah. goes back to him mocking Sundin for the stick over the glass and Darcy Tucker being hit by Alfie and then oh, Alfie yeah. scores. And those were great times. And Scanlon's piece is basically, will we have the teeth back in the rivalry? And, you know, I think I think we will for sure. I think Ottawa's kind of where Toronto was four or five years ago, and looking forward to that. And I was definitely so happy to see Montreal look so good. That Caden Gooley wasn't he unreal? Oh, twenty-three so, minutes, Ron. Twenty-three yeah, minutes. Yeah, he, he he was glued to Matthews. You notice in the two games they're shadowing Matthews, like they they lose all interest oh, yeah. in the game and follow Austin around. So he's going to have his work cut out for sure. But he did a great job, Austin, on the on the bunting goal. He was kind of faking that he was going to set up where he normally likes to and Marner flips it to him and then he skated away and he drew everybody over and Bunting was wide open so Austin's doing the team game thing and yeah it'd be great to see that game and great to see Montreal Washington Saturday and then the Battle of Alberta obviously Absolutely. Um, let me ask one final one final thought on the on the Ottawa Senators uh, it's been called you know the summer of Pierre in the east uh, the summer of Brad in the right. west that so tree living did a you know, marvelous job retooling the Calgary Flames team and we all know what Pierre Dorian's done uh, with the Ottawa Senators, you know, where are you at with, with the Sens? I mean, Debrinket is marvelous. That's a great acquisition. Uh, day one of the NHL draft, boom. Uh, Claude Giroux, he said he had, you know, the, and um, no need to dispute him, a lot of options here. That it wasn't, you know, the, the layup that he was going to Ottawa, the Sens ended up getting him. Tim Stutzla, high expectations are there. The Josh Norris contract, etc. We all know about the goaltending situation. How close is this, do you think, to being a legit Battle of Ontario again? Well, the the only thing they're missing, I feel now, the loss of Nick Paul, Connor Brown, some of the spit. Mm. Uh, I I think that's for both Toronto and uh, Ottawa. 
it continues to be, you know, when Austin got bowled over, sorry to go back to the Leafs here, Ottawa fans, for just for a second, <laughs> Ottawa, uh, Matthews got bullied last night and nobody really took exception to it. And that's, that's the one fear I have with a, a team. When you load up on talent the way both the Sens and the Leafs do, uh, you need guys like Nick Paul that power through and cause trouble. Uh, and, and so that, and, and I know Kachuk can do it, but that's, you don't want your captain doing it, you know? So, um, he will, and he has to, just as Aginla and many others have. But I, that that would be my only question mark: is can they can they find a way to uh, be strong enough to protect those kids? Because those kids are great. They certainly are. Uh, always a delight. Look forward to uh, tomorrow. It is the uh, the Battle of Alberta. It is the Battle of Ontario. It is the Montreal Canadiens and the Washington Capitals. It is Hockey Night in Canada. My guest has been the host of HNIC, Ron McLean. Thanks as always, Ron. We'll see you for 32 thoughts, and I'll shut up so you can get some stuff in there tomorrow night, Jeff. <laughs> Try to uh, spit some things out and make them intelligible. Thanks so much for this, as always, Ron. Pleasure. There he is, Ron McLean, host of Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, big doubleheader kicks off at 7 o'clock. Don't forget, uh, Hockey Central gets underway at 6.30. Uh, that is the pregame show. 7 o'clock is the puck drop of the Habs and the Capitals. Ascends and the Maple Leafs. Some interesting games on the board uh, tonight. The Blue Jackets facing off against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Trevor Carrick. Uh, has been called up from Syracuse, but he will not play. Carrick is an interesting story as well. Um, I really, I really like this player. I like his brother Sam uh, as well. I like the Carrick family. Uh, Trevor Carrick, day one of training camp, takes a puck in the face, busted open for 15 stitches, gets all zipped up, concussion protocol, the whole deal. Comes back the very next day. I'm not taking any days off. I'm right, right back at this thing. And then I think it might have been the second day. Or maybe third day, just a regular drill or maybe a scrimmage goes hard into the boards and messes up his shoulder. Doesn't play any games in the preseason. One exhibition AHL game and then gets called back up. But he will not play tonight uh, as a Tampa Bay Lightning face off against the Columbus Blue Jackets. As we all know, no Justin, uh, no um, Patrick Line for the Blue Jackets. He's out with the elbow injury. Justin Danforth uh, from Oshawa, Ontario uh, will go into his stead. And Danil Tarasov. Gets to start once again. Elvis Merzlikens will back up, uh, but after having not played this week and being ill, Tarasov gets to start for the second game in a row. Montreal Canadiens, speaking of net minders, it'll be Jake Allen in net once again for the Habs as they face off against the Tread Red Wings. Vili Husso gets to start there. Alex Nedeljkovic will go tomorrow against the New Jersey Devils. And I know I'm focusing so much. I mentioned this with Elliot in the first hour, but the third line, and by the way, this is Derek Lalonde's first game as a head coach in the NHL. He's the new head coach of the Detroit Red Wings. He's got the size on the third line. Elmer Soderblom, six foot eight, 250 pounds. Michael Rasmussen, six foot six, 210 pounds. Oscar Sundquist, who's the short guy on the line, six foot three, 210 pounds. Average height is like six foot six <laughs> on that line. Enjoy that one tonight and enjoy that one, Montreal. Uh, the New York Rangers look like they cannot be defeated. Spectacular wins against the Tampa Bay Lightning, where New York really made Tampa look quite pedestrian, as a matter of fact. Uh, and then last night, they go into Minnesota at the XL Energy Center and hand it to the Wild. Artemi Panarin looks fantastic. Lafreniere looks fantastic. Mika Zibanejad looks outstanding. Some great play by Keandre Miller last night. 
Uh, we all know about Igor Shosturkin, uh, defending Vesna Trophy winner. Uh, they'll face off against Winnipeg Jets. Connor Hellebuck gets a start for Winnipeg. Uh, the Cole Perfetti line, I shouldn't call it the Cole Perfetti line, although I do love Cole Perfetti. That second line with, uh, with Cole Perfetti uh, and Pierre-Luc Dubois and Blake Wheeler, that looks like a real nice one. Uh, we'll see tonight the Jets get their season started like, facing off against the New York Rangers. And the late game, it is the return of Brent Burns to San Jose. Now he's a member of the Carolina Hurricanes, as we all know. He pairs uh, with one of the best defensive players in the game, best defensive defenseman in the game, and Jacob Slavin. It will be a loud ovation, folks. I mean, when you look at, you know, after Joe Thornton and some would argue Patrick Marlowe as well, if you look at this last generation of San Jose Sharks team, when I say San Jose Sharks, don't you just get a picture of Brent Burns? Like, right away? He was the face of the franchise for a number of years. Now, remember the Hurricanes. The ovation will be large. The San Jose Sharks, after uh, dropping a pair of games in Prague against the Nashville Predators, uh, they get going again at home against the Hurricanes at the SAP. There will be a large ovation for Brent Burns. Um, Carolina Hurricanes look good. This is a team that is expected to qualify for and maybe win the Stanley Cup. They are legit that scary, comma, again. Uh, we'll hit a break. When we come back, uh, it's the first week of the season, and it's been a pretty newsworthy one as well. If you missed any of it, we'll recap the week with our producer, Matt Marchese, who stops by for the week that was with Maddie. Merrick's show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Quickly, before we get to the week in review, the week that was with uh, our man, Matty Marchese, um, Edmonton Oilers uh, announcing a couple of hockey operation updates. Duncan Keith is back like a vertebrae. He is a player development consultant now with the Oilers. Matty, can we get him on the show? Uh, you lobby paging, for this now? Paging Jamie Cartmel. Okay. Paging Jamie Cartmel. I'll love be emailing to, you shortly, Jamie. Love to talk to Duncan Keith. And Milan Ticci as director of amateur European scouting. He played a handful of games with the Blackhawks and the Islanders in the 90s. Dude, how do you... He was you, a minor like, league legend. Here's one for you. I'm going to drop one on you. Like, how do you he know He was a minor league legend, okay, defenseman. Pretty tough, up. too. When he played with... Because he played with the Grizzlies in the IHL, dating myself here. Who was his assistant coach? I know. Uh, wait, Kev- wait, 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 hold on. on. Kevin Chevaldeo. Oh, I wasn't going to get there. No, you weren't going to go there? No. Okay. I don't know how you know this and what what this, compartment of your no, brain no, 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 it no, no, settles no. in. No, this this like stuff like this kept me single for a lot of years, dude. Like I always say, Bill, don't be me. You will be single and lonely for a lot of years. Your only friend will be like the Hockey Hall of Fame and the Hockey Hall of Fame Resource Center. Listen, I know a lot of people that be like, oh, I'll sign up for that because they're single already. So <laughs> why not? Why not have the adjustment? Going through old game sheets. Yeah, my life was exciting. <laughs> uh, what's up, Maddie? The week that was. Yeah, some fun this week. Yep, Connor McDavid. So we'll lead with the Connor McDavid. He gets to the 700 point plateau, and when I saw that he had 700 points, the first thing I said to myself was, "Holy cow!" Because yeah. you don't think you know how good he is, and then when you realize how many games he's played, and then you go, "Hmm." That's really good. Yeah, you know. Was seventh fastest to 700 points? Like, we're talking 
one of the all-time great. Like, if Connor McDavid were to retire today, he goes into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Not even a question. Yeah. It's frightening. Really is. And the interesting thing about McDavid, I've always made this point. The thing about his, see, his group was the first one that just grew up with this as the way you play the game. So one of the things coming out of the 204-205 lockout that I think a lot of us wondered about was, okay, who's going to be able to play in the quote-unquote new NHL, like the new way the game was going to be played uh, with the crackdown on obstruction, premium on foot speed, all of that. Like there were a lot of players that had to, and it cost a lot of people careers, change the way they played. Yeah. They had to play a completely different way. I need to break the way that I used to play and learn a whole new way to play hockey. Uh, some guys did it and some guys didn't. And you remember how awkward that first year was in the NHL? Oh, man. Like all the guys that, the especially the big guys that were on those big tickets that once the rules changed. Philadelphia <laughs> defenseman, Bobby Clark signed all of them. And I, I remember <laughs> watching it because the Leafs had a few. And you watch it and you just look and go, it's amazing how quickly all of that changed. And the big guy the line that you always used to use, or you still do to an extent, is a small player has to prove he can play and a big player has to prove he can't. True. And in that case, there were a lot of big guys that proved that they couldn't play. It's true. It was unreal. But the thing is, like, that was such a weird year. Now, you remember who won the Rocket Richard that year? The the first year after the lockout? Yeah. Was it? Was it not? I feel like it was Rick Nash. Or no, no was that earlier? No, it was not Rick Nash. Is that Jonathan Chichu? It's Jonathan Chichu. Mm. Now, Jonathan Chichu was a heck of a player. Jonathan Chichu was a real good shooter. Jonathan Chichu scored goals. But Jonathan Chichu won the won the Rocket Richard that year. Remember who won the Stanley Cup that year? Uh, that would and have been didn't the Carolina. Re- and didn't the, return for years. The Carolina Hurricanes. It was just one of those weird seasons. Yeah. Like, I don't think you go as far as to say, like, you take everything from that year and throw it out because everybody was relearning the game. No, but pretty close, though. But, like, some, a lot of weird things happened that season. Yeah. And Carolina was the first one to go like, hey, foot speed's going to win. And you know what? They were right. It did. And they did. But then Carolina didn't get back to the, the playoffs for a number of years. The only point that I'm trying to make here is that was the beginning of a new way to play hockey. So you're wondering, okay, which is the group that's going to grow up with this rule package that makes it to the NHL first? Mm-hmm. It was McDavid's group. Yeah. So to the point about, oh, there'll never be another one like McDavid, as great as McDavid is and he's the best player in the game, there will be. Yeah, it's... It's also, I feel like around that time too, the way that players, kids especially, the way they trained, a lot of them stopped playing other sports in the summer. And I think that's been a huge thing. Also the way that they train, of course, as well. Mm -hmm. But when I was growing up, my dad would tell me, and I'm not comparing myself to anybody, but the point was- Anybody compare yourself to Connor McDavid this week, Rich? No. Oh, no. This would be good. Be no. clip worthy. The only thing that Connor McDavid and I have in common is that we've probably both been to Upper Canada Mall. That's like saying that, uh, yeah, Winnie the Pooh and Alexander uh, the Great are the same because uh, they have the same middle name. I don't even the. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure out what I was because the first thing that crossed my mind was. Okay, Jeff is coming up with this Martin Tichy stuff, and then he knows Alexander. <laughs> Milan the Gr- whatever thank you very much. Thank- Have Milan some respect. I don't know. I didn't know who he was. Sixth rounder, Chicago. I think it's six, maybe seven. Do you know the year too? He was drafted. I'm looking uh, this hang up. Hang on a second here. Uh, I want to say this up. 89. That was a good year. 88 or 89. That was a good year, Tichy. Oh, yeah, is that right? Yeah, because that was the year I was born. No, spectacular. The world revolves 1989, eighth round. So you were half right. See, but you got of, Chicago Blackhawks. I'm slipping. My game used to be tight. My my game now the, the lid is loose. 
The yeah, lid is loose on, my, on, on, the, on the, the jar that holds all my hockey knowledge. Yeah, the got, lid is loose now, but <laughs> so. But the point is, is that when when I was growing up, everybody, the elite athletes, played different sports. Whether it be lacrosse, or they played baseball, or they played soccer. In a lot of cases, now it's like you play hockey and you train. Whether that's yeah. good or bad for these kids, I don't know. But certainly for someone like Connor McDavid, it worked. I mean, he had natural God-given ability to start with. Okay, so here's but he had to work at it. Here's what I always say about that. Yes, that is true, but that replaced training in the off-season. It was, I'm going to play hockey in the winter, and then I'm going to play baseball in the summer. So instead of, like, doing specific training for your body, you played another sport. Training yeah. training itself, like, re- I remember talking to Matt Nickel about this. The great Matt Nickel. It's fantastic. So, like, what do you do with an athlete, like, when they're done and they'll have, like, a week off or maybe a couple of weeks off, and then they come back to start training again? What do you do? He says, like, the first part of training is just recovery. Mm-hmm. Just recovery from the season before we start to build up again. But that's the thing that's different now. You know, a lot of people look down at, oh, the 12-month-a-year hockey player, this is ridiculous, you should play other sports. And I do agree with multi-sport going all the way up. But at a certain point, if you're going to advance to an elite you gotta, level. Yeah, you got to pick. You got to pick one. It, it does have to happen. But replacing that multi-sport element of your life is training. Yeah. Watch players train now to heal up their bodies and to, you know, to, to, to get themselves prepared, not just physically, but mentally. So I always, you know, because I don't want to turn into that old guy, shakes hand, you know, shakes fist at clouds, <laughs> right? Get off my lawn. Our hockey was better. It was smarter when we played. Well, no, it wasn't. It's not. It wasn't smarter. It was different. But now what's replaced playing lacrosse in the offseason or playing, you know, baseball in the offseason is really sophisticated training. Yeah. That gets you, that prepares you for the next season. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fair. So another thing that happened this week. So Wayne Gretzky's got a lot of records. We know that. A <laughs> lot of records. But I love the new commercial with him and Connor too, by the way. It's great, eh? It's awesome. That's my that's my favorite. Like when he looks, <laughs> when he shoots the puck at him and he says, hey, Nets that way. Nets and then he says, way. shouldn't you be golfing? Yeah. That's great. You know what I always want to figure out when I see commercials like that? What rink is that? Yes, do I do know? that a lot. I don't know. I don't know what rink I do that, that a lot, but I bet you... It's, think it's around here i don't I know mean, a lot of them are i have no idea here. a lot of them are around and when you say here on a national show what he's referring to is toronto, toronto. my yeah. apologies i'm i'm very yeah. local um i did a commercial once so did i with oscar oh. with oscar peterson okay i was gonna say yeah you did a microsoft it was a teams commercial but before yeah, you were, did taylor hall yeah. I was gonna was say, to- was, before and that was totally TV. not shot like two weeks before with taylor hall in a, a hotel room in pittsburgh <laughs> well now we know where <laughs> that was shot <laughs> Okay, so this was before your TV career then. Yeah. This was uh, when I was like eight years old. It was an ad for, I think it was an ad for Red Cross. It was playing playing piano. Could you actually play the piano? I did. I used to take piano lessons once by wow. time. The multi-talented nah, I Jeff Merrick. I, I, I was never really good. I played drums later on. That yeah, I love. That's the, clo- that's the closest. I, like, I can't play an instrument. Zero musical ability in me. Mm. I, could play, I could play the opening riff to Smells Like Teen Spirit, I you and see. that's it. Smoke on the water. The holy trinity I think of rock. I could do that dan, too. Dan, dan. And then the other one was I could play a little bit of Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. So the easiest songs that you, you play could play the kick drum part, right? Just the stand no, of the quarter notes. No, I could I, I could play like the opening riff and that was pretty much it. Because <laughs> I can't slide my fingers down the neck of the guitar fast enough. And, yeah, it's really bad. Uh, I was in a Gatorade commercial. You're in a Gatorade commercial? Yeah, that was fun what did because you do? the pay was great. Um 
do you it was a Super Bowl commercial. Yeah. And it was the one where they had like regular everyday Joe's recreate big sporting moments. Oh, what was yours? Uh, I was the I was the guy who couldn't back check, which is a story of my life, to catch the Sidney Crosby who scores. No way. Yeah. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Is this commercial available online? I think it's on YouTube. Okay, send I'm me pretty the sure link. it's send on me YouTube. The link. We'll yeah. tweet this out. And it uh, the the funniest part about that Watch was your we- straight leg back checks. Not even, just non-existent. <laughs> that was the life. I lose the opening face-off too. That ends up leading to the goal. It's a lot of fun. Shocking. Um. Yes. Very. And the worst part was, was the guy who was playing the Crosby role, he couldn't score. Like he was, he was having a really hard time scoring on the play. So it ended up that the rest of us ended in like a different spot. And then he needed like 40 takes to try and do it. And the guy was a hockey player. It's not like they actually, when they did the casting call, it was all hockey players that were doing it. Who was he? Do you remember? And where'd he play? I can't remember who it was. I remember he had a beard. Young guy, junior guy, minor pro. He was a young junior Dearly guy. There's no, there was no pro guys there. One of the guys that was in the commercial was a was big into um, the Red Bull crashed ice. Local guy. No from way. I used to work out with the guy that did that. I bet you it's the same guy. Psycho dude. All those guys are psycho dude. Yeah, I couldn't do that. Stuff. I barely like getting hit into the boards. I remember PJ did that once when we, uh, we were at CBC together and <laughs> CBC had the rights to crash the ice and Peter's like, I'm going to try it. What are you, stupid? Yeah. He was like, yeah, that was that was a bad move. PJ is one of my favorites. Okay, Lovely. so we talked about the Wayne. I like how we got to commercials with, anyway, uh, Leon Dreisaitl ties Wayne Gretzky's Euler record mm-hmm. with a point in seven straight openers. Now, you would hmm. think that Connor McDavid would be in that conversation, but he is not. Yeah. But Leon Dreisaitl, and you and I talked about this, that pass that he made to Connor McDavid oh. off the pass from Zach Hyman, That's it the, happened the first so, one? Yeah, it happened so fast that I legit had to watch the highlight because I couldn't believe that he made that play from that spot that quickly. There's a few, well, there's a lot of impressive things about Dreisaitl. Yeah. One, how he played as a stationary player last year in the playoffs. And scored like a bajillion points. Yeah, he made great plays and was in agony and played with a high ankle sprain. That's, Everyone said, how are you doing this? Yeah, that's crazy. But if you look at, we've talked about his blade before. So it's a canoe paddle. Mm-hmm. Like you look at Dreisaitl's blade, it's the biggest in the end. I don't know how it's, he plays. Like I mean, he's great. So, But the thing about it is he uses every part of the blade. Yes. Like you can understand where that's going to help him in face-offs. Like you're, sure. good luck. Yeah. Like guys that like want the short blade to keep the puck in tight so they yeah, can feel fun. it all along. Um, like he'll use like this entire part of the canoe paddle, mm-hmm. which Datsuk is the only other guy that I've ever seen with a blade like that. And Datsuk was a lot like at the end, it really expanded and it was thick. Yeah, it was like a shovel. Yeah. It was kind of like a shovel. Why do we know this stuff? Keep it a single man. <laughs> yeah. My wife's probably listening. Yeah, you should, you still should be. <laughs> um, by the way, some observations from this week. Yeah. I think we need some adjusting here. Um, okay. Can somebody after a couple of games we're recalibrating the entire season? No, no, we're just recalibrating. No, we're just recalibrating players and the equipment that they have. Oh, one. Can we get Connor Garland a taller stick, please? One. You know, you know what? You know who? That's funny you mentioned that because you know who's always been knocked for using a stick that's too short. Quentin Byfield, big tall dude, but looks like really like. He looks like almost yes, hunched over. I remember over having that conversation. His, yeah. his, his thick is so short. You know, I remember having a conversation once with Adam Oates. And you mm-hmm. know the one thing that uh, that Adam likes to do? And he's like one of these like 
Adam, Hall of Famer, obviously, one of the best passers of all time. Played in Nobleton, by the way. Uh, Right. And one of the best lacrosse Mm -hmm. hockey players, like broke a bunch of Wayne Gretzky's lacrosse records and said, his creds are legit Mm -hmm. at every single level. He's kind of good. So one of the things that that he was talking to me about was the correlation of the lie of the stick and concussions. He said, one of the first things I always want to do with a team when I take them over is change the lie of the stick because like when you're obviously when you're hunched over or you're playing with a with a with a lie that you know gets your head down that mm-hmm. becomes a target he goes i want my guys you know more upright and you know with their obviously with their, so they their chins up. up so the you know you look at like players that have a lie that forces them to 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 lean in and keep their heads down they're susceptible to concussions he has this whole like, i remember another conversation i had with him how much time do we have here Okay, so I remember another conversation I had with him about the Detroit Red Wings. I mentioned yep. Pavel Datsuk a second ago. This is when he was working at Hockey Night, and I would always love getting in early just to talk to Adam. Like, okay, Adam's on. I'm going to corner him when he's getting his makeup. It's like, that. okay, he's going to be in there with Leanne, and he's going to be getting his makeup done. So that's like 10 minutes I can corner Adam and fire like a million dumb questions at him. Yeah. He's always very gracious and answers all of them, and he usually has a really intelligent answer. We... uh I was talking to him about the Detroit Red Wings, and I can't remember which player it was. Might have been, might have been Franzen, might have been Holmstrom. I can't recall. But I was saying, though, isn't it you know interesting that the Detroit Red Wings, like a lot of these players, are all retiring injured and all retiring like significantly hurt because it's not really a physical team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he said, he said, there's one easy reason for that. Okay. And I said, what is it? He said, they're a puck possession team. They hang on to the puck. So you get the puck more, you get beat up more. You get hit yeah. when you hold the puck. At least That's you when should. you're eligible to be hit. He said, you know, it's it's great. You know, everyone's like, it's a race to be a puck possession team. We've got to hold the puck, puck possession. They keep hearing it, right? Become became a buzzword however many years ago. He goes, that also makes you um, eligible to be really hit and really hit hard. And there was no better puck possession team in the NHL and the Detroit than Red those Wings. Detroit Red Wings. Yeah. But you pay the price at the other end of it. Yeah. I believe that, and it does make sense. Like, Adam Oates is a smart guy, so, I mean, I trust him. You know, there was one thing. I remember, so I talked, last time I talked to Adam was, it was in the spring. I can't remember what playoff game it was, but there was a play where someone got just smoked stepping in over the blue line, and you're like, how did he not see that hit coming? And so I was talking to Adam. Actually, I was going up to Aaron Ambrose's gold medal ceremony in, mm-hmm. um, in Keswick and was talking to Adam, and he's like, pull over and watch that watch that play again. And so I did, and I watched it. And I'm like, I don't see it. Why did he get hit? He goes, it's obvious. I tell all my guys this. And he works with, like, Shifley and Eichel mm-hmm. and all these guys. And I said, what was it? He goes, watch his bottom hand. Where was his bottom hand when he got hit? And I said, his bottom hand was on the stick. He said, where was his bottom hand right before he got hit? He goes, it was off the stick. And he said, what happened in between? I said, he put his hand on his stick? He said, no. As he puts his hand on his stick, he looked down for that split second mm-hmm. to put his hand on because it's an instinct. And you probably do it in men's league, and I'm sure I've done it at the same time. Anyone listening right now probably has a look down. And it's an instinct. You're putting your hand on your stick. You look down for a split second. And he that said, split second makes the world of a difference. That's the moment. He goes, it might be boring, but we actually practice that. Wow. Putting your hand on your stick and not looking down when huh. you do it. That tiny, like that, that's where Adam is at. That's like at, next at, level. at training, like the Shifleys and the Eichels and, and these types of players. I think he worked with Nathan McKinnon in the offseason. And he worked as well. with Stamkos, I think, too. 
Stamkos? I thought it was. I thought Stamkos. Anyway, he that's, works with a lot of really good players. That's the level of mm-hmm. thinking. We got to get Adam back on the program. That's the level. That that's the level that he's thinking at. Yeah, and training guys. That's crazy. Okay, the other observation: uh, somebody get Yessi uh, Puliyarvi a helmet that fits. Please. <laughs> it's too small. Like, get him a Gatorade bucket or something. I don't know. Um, we only have a couple minutes here. So, uh, Sidney Crosby yeah. ties, Dale, ties Dale Howardchuk for 38th on the all-time goal list with 518. He is four behind the yeah. guy that should be in the Hall of Fame, Pat Verbeek. How is Pat Verbeek <laughs> 37th in all-time goals and not in the Hall of Fame? I see. I Shame want, on you. I wonder about because so much of this is sort of you know reputational and and how much awareness you have about the person. I wonder now that he's mm. in a high profile position in the yeah. NHL. Now the conversations start to be had more about Patrick. I mean, how many times did you know when we were doing the old Hockey Central noon hour show? Um, oh my God, we had did, that debate a thousand times with Stewie. Yeah. Right about how is Pat Verbeek not in there? Like, you know the 500 goal barrier, sure, and 2500 pims in the Stanley Cup, etc. Like in thousand points, like. A lot of the barriers to entry for the Stanley Cup, like Verbeek skated right by all of them. Yeah, it's true. So it's I don't true. Know. I still and can't figure out how Larmer's not in. Pierre Turgeon for me. Uh, Alexander McGillney, Theo Fleury. Like, we can go down the list. There's lots. Lauren Shabbat. Your favorite. The problem with that one is no one's old enough to have seen him. <laughs> I was going to make a joke, but I don't even think I can. No one's um, seen him on the voting committee. And, and Sidney Crosby having that many goals. And he's, I think he's now a couple of points ahead of Ovechkin yeah. in all-time points. Like, they're neck and neck, and they're just going to start passing guys at the same time. Yep. Uh, another guy that you really wish was healthy for the healthy more than he was because we'd be talking him. He's 20th in points right now. We'd be talking him, like, near the top 10 with all the games that he's missed. Some might say if he was diagnosed properly. Yeah. About that. That doesn't happen doesn't happen in any sport not even in the nfl cherish him man and he was great again yesterday oh. i feel bad you know who i feel bad for this year carl vimelka because he's gonna have a million nights like that where he faces like 60 shots and has to stand on his head to do anything respect make make arizona any kind of respectable pay the man get paid more he deserves more money what does do we say all the money all the money carl vimelka arizona back next week for more of the merrick show thanks for joining me this week.